The first of my posts to the Facebook group about Part 3, Book 3, was a focused summary of the chapter. Hugo has established the situation in harrowing detail. On the plateau, eight battalions of Republican soldiers, driven by devotion to a new dawn and by vengeance for the adopted family brutally wrested from them. In the tower, nineteen men prepared to die for their ideals, but determined to exterminate as many enemy soldiers as possible first. And in the library, three blissfully unaware sleeping children. And then, in a Christmas carol-like transport, where one is brought closer to something in order to see its moral import, we go inside the library and are allowed an intimate glimpse of the radiant innocence of these three young souls. I think of this chapter as Victor Hugo's Hymn to Childhood, a distinct, eloquent, profound hymn. He is able to move us with poetic abstractions. Quote, the most sublime canticle one can hear on this earth is the stammering of the human soul on the lips of a child. Unquote and to charm us with delightful details. Quote, René Jean looked like a little Hercules. He was sleeping on his stomach, with his fists in his eyes. Unquote. Over the course of the chapter, he makes sure that we fall completely in love with the children, but not just with the children, with childhood itself. In the first chapter, the birds twittered above the soldiers' bayonets. Here, the children play amidst preparations for war. The juxtaposition of innocence and violence continues. When the enemies call to each other with horns and bugles, Georgette hears them and mutters, Missick. She travels across the library on a toddling adventure, gripping the ladder that could save her and her brothers from an awful death. The three children fall peacefully asleep in the calm, merciful, radiant sweetness of evening, unaware of the threat that looms above their angelic heads. And when the cannon is sounded, indicating that the truce has come to an end, Georgette hears nothing but a noise without meaning, raises her little head, and says, Boom. Apparently, at the time Hugo wrote this passage, he had taken his orphaned grandchildren into his home. Great artists have superior powers of vision and expression. Hugo saw children, and he expressed all the beauty, innocence, joy, and promise that they embody. As for the massacre of St. Bartholomew, I'm interested to hear others' interpretation of the playful and guileless destruction of this sacred folio, but here's mine. I saw it both as symbolic of revolution, but also, and maybe more importantly, as tongue-in-cheek. This book is a relic of the past, a religious tome and a noble's treasure, and these three innocent little children, who represent the future, tear it to shreds but it is also another charming image of innocence with a backdrop of war. For this is the sort of massacre of which children are capable, while the men outside prepare for a massacre that is terrible and real. In the second of my posts, I shared my favorite lines from Part 3, Book 3. I've said many times that if I were to have a religion, it would be this chapter. It contains a reverence for childhood, 
a sacred appreciation of beauty, and an outlook on life that is both grand and humane. It, in its entirety, is a favorite of mine. But if I have to choose a few, there are these tributes to childhood. The awakening of children is like the opening of flowers. A fragrance seems to arise from those fresh souls. A ray of morning sunshine was on her crib. It would have been difficult to say which was pinker, her foot or the dawn. A child babbles what a bird sings. It is the same hymn, an indistinct, stammered, profound hymn. A child's murmur is more and less than speech. It is not made up of notes, yet it is a song. It is not made up of syllables, yet it is a language. That murmur had its beginning in heaven and will not have its end on earth. It is from before birth, and it goes on. It is a continuation. That stammering is composed of what the child said when he was an angel, and of what he will say when he is a man. Her wide open eyes were looking up, and were divine. No matter what ceiling a child may have above his head, the sky is reflected in his eyes. Groelan had made his string into a whip, and was cracking it. He was very proud of it. Such are inventors. When one cannot discover America, one discovers a little wagon. And then there are these observations, so concise, but so illuminating, charming, and true. Nothing is more like a soul than a bee. It goes from flower to flower, as a soul goes from star to star. Three years copies four years, but twenty months keeps its independence. Giving is a form of superiority. René Jean kept nothing for himself. Like all glories, it made a big noise and a cloud of dust. And finally, I have to include this breathtaking description of evening. And if you visit the Facebook post, you can see a beautiful painting of evening done by Caspar David Friedrich. Warm air blew in through the open windows. The fragrance of wildflowers, wafted from the ravines and hills, was mingled with the evening breeze. Space was calm and merciful. Everything was radiant. Everything was growing quiet. Everything loved everything. The sun was giving its caress of light to all creation. One could sense that harmony which is given off by the colossal sweetness of things. There was maternity in the infinite. I called the last of my posts Life with an Artist's Eye. This week I had a wonderful conversation with fellow teacher Edwin Mizrahi that started with the importance of noting and recalling and sharing stories from the classroom and ended with the importance of art. It prompted me to go back to the thoughts I had shared on this topic in my course Making Poetry Part of Your Life and I discovered that, coincidentally, they had included a story about Mr. Mizrahi. Those thoughts are relevant to our purposes, so here they are. Art provides us with a sort of X-ray vision, only it is a vision that allows us to see not through things, but to the heart of things. 
It is a vision that allows us to see the core of a man's soul, or to the essential meaning of his actions, or to the basic consequences of his ideas. It is a vision that allows us to experience a universe stripped of the accidental and the inconsequential, a universe that is purposeful, essentialized, and neatly integrated with the goal of conveying some important insight. When we read a great work of literature, we inhabit a crystal-clear, thoroughly purposeful, deeply meaningful world. This contrasts with our day-to-day -day experience in our own lives, which is full of the mundane and the contradictory and the purposeless. Life is sometimes confusing and muddled, and the basic characterization of the people we meet, or the essential themes of our experiences, are not always obvious. But having lived in these streamlined worlds that great authors have created helps us to take a focused, active-minded, integrative perspective on our own lives. Beneath the daily details, there are themes, there are fundamental values, there are overarching purposes, and having seen these drawn so clearly in a work of art helps us to find them under the clutter of our own lives. At school, I often emphasize the importance of communicating stories to parents about good things that their kids do or say at school. Just little things. For example, one day a class of second graders learned the word fleece in their vocabulary class. Mr. Mizrahi, their teacher, illustrated the meaning of the word by asking them to each give him a quarter so that he could buy brownie mix, make them, sell the brownies, and then give them back a dollar each. After they agreed, he said he was going to run away with the money. This, he told them, was fleecing them out of their money. The next day, a couple of the kids asked him if he had any change in his pocket, and when he showed it to them, they grabbed it and said they had fleeced him. He then described to these eager, thoughtful students the difference between fleecing and outright robbing. Then one of them had a light bulb moment in which she noted the connection between fleecing a sheep and fleecing someone out of his money. Mr. Mizrahi shared this adorable little story with the second graders' parents. My reason for stressing the importance of teachers telling these stories to parents is twofold, but it's the second that is more important to me and that relates to the power of art. Sharing this story is a wonderful way to give the parents a glimpse of their children's accomplishments at school and to let them know that we notice and appreciate them. But the more important reason is that I want to encourage teachers to look at their day-to-day -day experiences with an artist's eye, to notice them, to grasp their connection to broader issues, to see their value significance. When this little second grader staged this scheme, learned a new lesson, and made an insightful connection, Mr. Mizrahi could have just passed it by as another in the sequence of events of his day. Or he can stop, reflect on it, appreciate it, and relate it to his deepest values. He can realize that it demonstrates the enthusiasm for learning that she has gained at our school, such that she wants to discuss vocabulary in the lunchroom. He can think about the fact that it reveals her playful comfort with him as a teacher, that she will happily pull a cute education-related prank on him. He can think about the value of such integrations as fleecing a sheep and fleecing a man of his money, and what this reflects about the thought processes that have come of her educational training. This little moment 
has so much profound value significance, and it needs to be noticed and contemplated and relished. This, I strongly believe, is one of the values we gain from literature. I think it trains us to look at our lives with an artist's eye, to see the abstract, the value significance behind the concrete. It helps us to strip away the irrelevant details in our own lives and to focus on the moments that connect to, reflect, highlight, and reinforce what is most important to us.